Welcome back, everybody, to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and this is episode four, rather, I should say, solo episode four. I've been throwing in these solo episodes kind of uh, every other week. They don't take long to do. I just sort of sit down and talk, and I got a little notepad here uh, with some notes that I just kind of follow and almost extemporaneously talk to you about whatever it is you guys have asked for. Um, on our Facebook group, Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace, I asked you guys to give me some suggestions of some sort of Church of Christ issues. Um, on the on the other weeks when I do the interview, I'm talking mainly to people who I find interesting. <laughs> these are these are not always people who have the same background as us, who see eye to eye with things that we may believe, as if you and I see eye to eye on everything, right? Uh, these are people I just find interesting, and I believe that one of our problems in Christianity and in religion in general is that we don't have conversations with people. And so bringing on people from widely different backgrounds and carrying on these conversations is one way that we can build a community. It's one way that we can get dialogue started. It's one way that we can sharpen iron, right? But on these solo episodes, it's just me. And I'm sorry if like, it's not as interesting as having someone to interview, uh, but that's why we're trying to keep them a little bit shorter, except for the women's roles one, of course, because that one was, yeah, we had a lot of ground to cover there. I do want to give you one announcement, um, and that is I republished my book, How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven, as a paperback, and it's the same content. It's just in a paperback version, and I get charged a lot less for the paperback version, and so I'm able to make that one a lot cheaper. So I think it's like eleven seventy four or something like that on Amazon, uh, which I think gives me $1, <laughs> which basically lets me know how many copies I sold. It also, you know, buys me coffee at Jack's. Uh, I get the senior cup, so it's like 49 cents. So, you know, it gets me two coffees at Jack's. Uh, but anyways, I invite you to check out that book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Apparently, uh, it's available for expanded distribution as well. So support your local sheriff and your local bookstore. Today we're going to be talking about the marks of a true church, or you may even say the marks of a sound congregation, as opposed to a congregation filled with mutes. Um, we're using this language, marks of a true church, marks of a sound congregation, because this is something people are particularly interested in, especially when they go on vacation. You know what I mean? It's like, hey... Uh, we're going to go to Pensacola. Does anybody know a sound congregation in Pensacola? Hey, we're going to go up to the Midwest. Can anybody point me to a sound congregation? And so you try to network with people who generally agree with the things that you believe, uh, and then you ask them if they know people in that area so that you can find a sound congregation. And you might even call them up and ask them, like, hey, do you guys believe X, Y, and Z? Do you guys have an instrument? Do you guys take communion? Do you guys do this? Do you guys do that? Or nowadays, you might even look at their website, look at their statement of faith or their list of beliefs or who are we or whatever. You might even tune to a service or two to make sure they don't have a praise team or to make sure they do have a praise team. I don't know. So there's a lot out there about the marks of a sound congregation. Uh, in my area recently, one of the non-institutional churches has started putting out these brochures all over town that talk about what is a sound church or what is a true church, Right. Is your church the right church, we may even say? Or sometimes you start by asking the question, like the Mormons do, uh, why are there so many churches? 
which is a question that I've asked as well. Why are there so many churches? So let's go back to this first question, uh, the marks of a true church. What are the marks of a true church? First off, what do you mean by true? Okay, what do you mean by true? Do you mean that they teach truth? Do you mean that they practice truth? Do you mean that they believe in the truth? Or some combination of all the above? Allow me to define those. So do they teach truth? The fact of the matter is, unless you find a church whose ministers and elders and Bible class teachers are infallible, they're not going to be 100% perfect, objectively speaking, in terms of the things that they preach, right? I don't pretend to give you all the answers here. I don't pretend to have, you know, it all figured out here. I, even in the Women's Roles podcast, I told you there are some things I cannot tell you because I do not know them, right? Like when it comes to Greek or Hebrew or whatever, or historical data or cultural references. I mean, hey, I don't, I don't have the Bible memorized, <laughs> you know? So to say that I 100% speak truth is to go far too far. So we understand that. And I don't think anybody would say that they teach 100% truth and like believe that even deep down, you know? And so everybody admits to some degree that they believe something that is incorrect. They may not know what that is, but I mean, are you really going to tell me that you interpret Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel as God originally intended? I mean, come on, right? That means, uh, as my friend Dallas Burdett was asked, do you mean to tell me that you fellowship brethren who are in error? And he said, I didn't know there were any other kind, right? The only people <laughs> that exist are people who are in error, unless you have somebody that knows as much as God, right? So, by the way, brethren, have you ever heard this word, brethren, but somebody say it, brethren? What, where does that come from? I mean, I've heard it like four or five times in my life, and every time I hear it, it throws me off, like a shock. What, brethren? What'd you, what'd you say? <laughs> I don't know. Language is weird, right? So we all have something wrong. We are all in error on something. And so if the mark of a true church is teaching 100% things that are true, which sometimes we call the truth, you're not going to find it. There is no church that teaches 100% things that are true. And I think that's important when we start using this word truth that we differentiate from things that are true and truth as defined in scripture. You may remember one passage, John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Aha, see there, the Bible. No, it's not talking about the Bible. And John, if you think about the broader context of John, especially John chapter one, verse one, the logos, the truth, or rather logos, the word is Jesus. And John 14, verse seven, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, the, the truth there is Jesus. Sanctify them through thy truth. That's talking about the Christ. Thy logos is, is the truth. That's exactly what's, excuse me, that's exactly what's been affirmed throughout the book of John. So there's a difference between talking about things that are true and, and, and uh, the truth. The truth is a person, and he has a name, and his name is Jesus, right? So, when someone says that they, teaches, that they teach the truth, well, if they teach Jesus, then I totally agree with them. And I can agree with them 100% on what they're teaching if they're teaching Jesus, right? Just as I hope that you can agree with me 100% when I'm teaching Jesus. That is, when I teach that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins and he raised again the third day for our sins. I hope that you 
believe that along with me because that is the truth. Jesus is the truth, who he is, what he did, what he was all about, right? So let me go back to this question. What are the marks of a true church? You might ask the question, what percentage of truth? Do they have to just get certain issues right? And if they have to get certain issues right, what issues do they need to get right? And what issues would it be okay if they got wrong? What about their interpretation of the Holy Spirit? What about their interpretation of Revelation? What about their interpretation of Bible prophecy? Can they be premillennial? Can they be postmillennial? Can they be amillennial? Can they be preterist? What percentage of truth do they need to have? That's a question. What about true practices? That might be something we ask. What about their worship? See, the marks of a true church we typically think have to do with their with the worship. If you walk in and you see a piano, time to hightail it out of there, right? Because that's not according to the biblical pattern. At least that's what you know. That's what we're told. But where do you see this anywhere in the New Testament? Where do you see these questions about about following a biblical pattern of worship? I I can't find anything, and I can't point to you, point you to a passage to say here's where it isn't, <laughs> right? Because I can't find it. So if you think there's a passage that says that we have to follow certain past certain practices in order to be considered a true church, uh, then let me know what those are. Now I do think there are some, right? Lord's Supper, baptism, but I don't think that you can say that your understanding of the Lord's Supper or baptism equates to practicing truth. You may demand that people take it weekly. I don't see in Scripture where that is a mark of a true Christian or a true church. You may practice baptism a little differently. Maybe you're like the household of Cornelius, and you believe that someone receives the Spirit before they're baptized. Or maybe you're like those uh, in Samaria who received the Spirit after they were baptized. Or maybe you're like those on the day of Pentecost who received the Holy Spirit as they were being baptized. It doesn't, mean, doesn't matter to me what you think about baptism. I think that Christians practice baptism. That might be the mark of a true church, right? They practice baptism. They practice Lord's Supper. Maybe not in the way that you specifically define or understand it, but those are some things that they do. But what about this whole thing about the pattern of worship? I suggest that you go back to our first episode, solo episode, on the regulative principle to pick up some stuff about that. But let me get to actually answering the question, because right now we've just kind of talked about what it isn't. Okay, we talked about what it isn't. But what is the marks of a true church? Let's take a look at some passages together. Um, Romans chapter 12, right? And there's other questions we could get into. Uh, what is the name of the church? What about the style of worship? What about the, the leadership? You don't read about any of that. There, no, there is no name of the church in Scripture, right? There, none, that doesn't matter in terms of you know deciding which church to go to. If someone calls himself Cornerstone Church or Bridge Church or Life Church, that's just as valid as causing as calling your church Church of God or Church of Christ because there is no name. Those are descriptions of uh, the people that are within that building, right? Uh, but anyways, what are the marks of a true church or a true Christian? Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another and showing honor. Hey, there you go. There's there's some good marks of a true church. If you're going into a congregation and they're trying to outdo each other and showing honor, there's a true church right there. Now, do you see that in most churches? Solid question, I think. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. 
persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. That might be a mark of a true church. Does your church pursue hospitality to strangers? Or does it wait on people to show up and then judge whether or not they're worthy of receiving help? That might be the mark of a true church. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Does the church that you're uh, attending or the church that you're thinking of attending, does it spend all of its time cursing those who persecute them? Getting involved in uh, the culture wars and saying that it's pitting good against evil and then you know, cursing those who disagree with them and, and calling it persecution? Do they do that? That might, that might be the mark of not a church, of a false church, <laughs> right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Is that going on? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Does your church associate with the lowly? If it does, I'd say it has a mark of a true church. If it doesn't, you know, that status is, I guess, questionable. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Well, man, that straight up eliminated any church I was a preacher of. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I could answer any Bible question. Oh, boy. I was not a a true Christian, I suppose, because I thought that I was way wiser than I actually was. Maybe I still do. Eh? Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Does your church advocate repaying evil for evil, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? If so, then it might not be a true church. It is, If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you see that within your congregation? These are some things, seem to me, uh, that Paul lays out are marks of a true church or a true Christian, right? And so true Christians make up a true church, right, Using, if we're restricted to using this language. Let me show another passage to you. This is from Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus' mission statement. Let me read it to you. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah. He reads this text, and he says, This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to win religious debates, make sure that people follow my particular patterns of worship, and my favorite part of the passage, condemn anyone who disagrees with me. Oh, wait, that's, hold on a second. I'm reading the King James. Let me switch versions here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to claim to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, your church may have baptism all figured out. Your church may know how to worship with or without instruments. But does your church do this stuff? See, to me, that's way more interesting than all of these uh, theological debates we get into. What is the name of the church? How do we do communion? How do we worship on Sunday morning? Are you taking care of the poor? Are you visiting those who are in need? Are you being the hands and feet of God in the world? Are you participating with God in the ever-expanding revolution of God or the kingdom of God? Are you, through your life, can people witness God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? See, that's the mark of a true church. To me, that was Jesus' mission statement. Shouldn't that be the mission statements of our church? Shouldn't that be the goals of our church? To bring good news to the poor, proclaim, proclaim least to the captives, right? Set free those who are oppressed? Or what about in Matthew 25? I know you're all familiar with these passages. I'm just reminding you of them in the context of this discussion. 
you know, Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the sheep and the goats. And we hear this, this language used all the time, you know, uh, on the day of judgment, right? Is are the Baptists, which way are they going to go? The sheep or the goat, right? Do they worship with instruments? Do they do this? Do they do that? Do they baptize that way? Do they teach this thing? Well, they're a goat, right? But that's not how Jesus defines sheep and goats. By the way, I just want to be a sheep. Bah. <laughs> okay, Matthew 25. So he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now we're in verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep at his right hand and the goat on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For you took communion on the first day, and you correctly interpreted Acts 2.38, and you understood the Trinity. No, come on. I know that joke's overdone. But he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. Right? That, those are the things he talks about. He says, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Instead of protesting my arrival. Um, I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then they ask, when did we do this? And he says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, then you've done it to me. Your church, for the first time in Christian history, can perfectly articulate the Trinity. Yay. Okay, that's great. What's, what's the poor? What is their opinion of your church? What is the sick? What is their opinion of your church? The shut-ins, what's their opinion of your church? The children who go home not knowing what they're going to eat that night. And not because there's not a meal plan, but because there's nothing in the, in the refrigerator. What do they think of your church? If your church were to drop off the face of the earth today, boom, who would protest? The preacher who makes a salary? The members who think it's the only faithful church in town? Or the poor, the destitute, the orphans, the widows, the imprisoned who depend on your church for hope and peace and love and spreading that good news. That's the mark of a true church. You show me a church that's doing that. That's a church that I can be a part of. I would rather be a part of a church that I can serve the world in, even if we have major theological differences, than I would be in a church that aligns with me perfectly, that doesn't lift a finger, that has a dead faith. Have you ever thought about that, uh, James chapter 2? The, de- the dead faith in James 2, it's not talking about somebody who hasn't been baptized and who dies on the way to the baptistry. James 2 is talking about people who were calling themselves Christians, calling themselves followers of Jesus. Actually, I said they called themselves Jesus. They they called themselves Christians. That word's only used twice uh, in the Bible, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware. I might be missing something here. Usually, they're Jesus followers or disciples, right? So they call themselves disciples of Christ, and yet when they see someone who is rich come into their assembly, they give them a preferred place over someone who is poor. That wasn't a true church. Who was the true church? The one who fed the hungry gave water to the thirsty, clothed the naked, visited the sick, cared for the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. That's true or pure religion. Somebody has a different style of worship than you. Somebody has a different leadership structure than you. 
somebody has a different name, may, could it be possible that they're technically incorrect? Sure. Could be possible that they're technically incorrect. But who is God looking for? Who are the sheep? Those who care for the least of these. That is what I think is the marks of a true church. Here, here's another way to look at it. Go to uh, Galatians chapter 5. Take a look at the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are these. Read those one by one. And ask yourself if those things are more prevalent in your congregation than the fruit of the Spirit and the latter part of that passage. See, that, that's, that to me is the mark of a true church. What fruit is the Spirit producing? Or is all you can see the works of the flesh? Anger and bitterness and jealousy and strife and fighting. Those things are the marks of a, if you had to call, if you had to use the terms, false church, right? This one was short. Wow, 20 minutes. But you know, sometimes it's best just to give the answer and not to go on to fill up space. So I hope you are blessed uh, whenever you listen to this, whether it's in the morning while you're on your way to work, whether it's at night while you're doing the dishes, whether it's like the way I like to do it, um, out on a walk on a mountainous trail. I hope that this was a blessing to you. I hope that you'll consider these things. Um, next week, we have an interview with Brian Zond of Word of Life Church. It's going to be published on February 2nd. And we're going to be talking about penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is uh, one way of looking at the cross of many, but it's one that's rose in the prevalence, especially since uh, John Calvin and the Reformation movement. And it's has a lot to do with forgiveness and things like that. The reason why we're going to do this is because, for those of you who don't know, uh, Barton W. Stone, he denied penal substitutionary atonement theory, whereas Alexander Campbell, he affirmed penal substitutionary atonement theory. So it's part of our past. Even if you're not aware of it, it's part of our past. And so it's good to uh, get into those discussions and try to you know, have these, have these kinds of deep theological discussions that may not be the mark of a true church, uh, but may inspire us or encourage us uh, to live life like Christ so that we may take part in the transformation of everything around us. Amen. Thank you again for joining me today. Hope you all have a wonderful day and God bless.